Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sabbath day, for the opportunity to study your word. Bless us as we study Hebrews chapter 9. May it give us a deeper understanding of the sanctuary message that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last week we had a, a very interesting study on Hebrews chapter 8, showing that Jesus is the, is the high priest sat down at the right hand of the throne in the majesty of the heavens, and that he's also described while seated at the right hand of the throne of God in chapter 12 as the author and the finisher of our faith. So his function as high priest is to also be the author and the finisher of our faith. And one of the things that he does as, as high priest and author and finisher of our faith is to write the new covenant, which is his law, into our hearts and minds. And so as author and finisher of our faith, when we finish the race, we have the faith of Jesus. We've run the race with patience, and he's written his law into our hearts and minds. So Jesus' role as high priest is to develop a group of people who finish the race with patience. They come to the end, they have the faith of Jesus, and they keep the commandments of God. That's the 144,000. So ultimately, the final role of Jesus as high priest is to develop the 144,000. And that's what he's been working on since 1844. So that's what Hebrews is sort of pointing out as we go through chapter 8. Then in chapter 9, we hit some very important concepts that we're going to go through. And we will get started <clears throat> in chapter 9. Let's see, I'd like a volunteer to read verses 1 and 2. Hebrews 9 verses 1 and 2. Quickly here. Or I'll call on someone. How about Dan Buxton? Hebrews 9, 1 and 2. And the earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Okay. So the first two verses, now Paul is shifting gears a little bit. He's like, okay, in the first covenant, we had a sanctuary. And this sanctuary, you had a tabernacle where the first, he refers to the first, where you have the candlestick, the table, and the showbread. And those of us who understand the sanctuary service, the earthly sanctuary, recognize the mosaic sanctuary here. Now, why do I say that? Because it talks about the candlestick, the table, and the showbread. And in Solomon's temple, there were ten candlesticks in the holy place. But in the sanctuary that was made in the wilderness, they had one candlestick. And so this is what Paul is referring to here. And so he refers to the first where there's a candlestick, table, and showbread. We're pretty familiar with this. So the, the candlestick, you have the seven candlesticks. You have the table of showbread, two stacks of six. And then you have the, um, the altar of incense. So <clears throat> then we have verse 3 says, And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. Now, <clears throat> this is an, an, imp is an important point. <clears throat> In the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, I think pretty much every Bible translation, including the King James Version, doesn't accurately translate the word 
the Greek word that Paul is using to describe the apartments of the sanctuary. And the, the worst culprit is the New International Version, but the King James is certainly not faultless here. But the Greek word that Paul uses eight times throughout the book of Hebrews is tahagia, or it's two words, tahagia, and literally translated means holies, so plural for holy, or holy places, which refers to the holy place and the most holy place, or the first apartment and the second apartment together. And the one place that Paul uses a different word is verse 3, where the King James says holiest of all, which happens to be translated correctly here. But the Greek word here is hagia hagion. So instead of tahagia, it's hagia hagion. Now, if you, if you look at the New International Version, the New International Version says most holy place throughout all of chapter 9. That's a very bad translation. The King James will say sanctuary, holiest of all, holy places, a variety of things. The one place that the King James gets this right is verse 24, where it says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. That's the, the most accurate translation of the word tahagia, holy places. That's an accurate translation because that's what it means. It means holy places, both the, both the holy place and the most holy place. So plural would be holy places. And the King James doesn't translate that correctly throughout most of the rest of the chapter or the book of Hebrews for that matter. So we want to clarify that here. What we see here, though, is Paul is saying, look, after the second veil, so if there's a second veil, there must be a first veil. And so there are some scholars, even within Adventism, Desmond Ford being one of them, who said, well, in Hebrews 6, it says Jesus entered into the veil. That's the most holy place. Well, actually, in Hebrews 9, we see there's a second veil. That second veil takes us to the most holy place. The first veil would take us to the holy place. So, anyway. And, by the way, Desmond Ford used the New International Version to prove his view about the sanctuary, just for your information. So, <clears throat> first apartment candlestick, table of showbread, altar of incense. Verse 3, we have the second veil where we have the tabernacle, which is the holy, called the holiest of all. And the, again, the Greek word for holiest of all here is hagia hagion. Now, I'd like a volunteer to read verses 4 and 5. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. Over here. <clears throat> so, Hebrews chapter 9. Verses 4 and 5. This is describing what's in the most holy place. <clears throat> Wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Okay. <clears throat> so here we see the furniture in the most holy place, the golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid roundabout with gold, wherein was the golden pot, 
that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And then we see the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat. It's interesting, Paul says, of which we cannot now speak particularly. There's a few things here. Paul is describing the sanctuary of the first covenant. And so you have the holy place and the most holy place of the earthly sanctuary, which was part of the first covenant experience. And yet in Hebrews 8, we know that this sanctuary was made as an example and shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. And so when we come to Revelation eleven nineteen, we see the temple of God is open in heaven and there was seen in the temple the ark of God's covenant. So it shows that, hey, in heaven, in the sanctuary in heaven, the ark of the covenant is there. So which apartment of the sanctuary would the ark of the covenant in heaven be? It would be in the holy of holies or the most holy place. And if you study Revelation 11, this is when the seventh trumpet begins to sound. It's when the third woe begins in history. That's October 22, 1844. That's it. We've gone through that in the book of Revelation in the past. So it's interesting. <clears throat> the Ark of the Covenant... <clears throat> has the tables of the covenant in it. And we've seen what the new covenant is for God's people. The old covenant, God wrote his law on tables of stone and the Israelites said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. But God says, you know, this time I'm gonna take matters into my own hands. In the new covenant, I will write my law into your heart and into your mind. Now, <clears throat> if the tables of the covenant and the ark of the covenant are in the most holy place, and we see that when the temple of God was open in heaven, and we see the Ark of the Covenant in Revelation eleven nineteen, as the seventh trumpet begins to sound, what do, then do we understand prophetically about when the new covenant will be finished in the lives of God's people? The new covenant will be finished at some point after the temple of God was opened in heaven in Revelation eleven nineteen, And if you study Revelation 11, Revelation eleven fifteen through 19 occurs after the second woe is passed and the third woe begins. And the, for those of you who were in the Revelation class, the first and the second woes occurred with the fifth and the sixth trumpets, and the third woe occurs with the seventh trumpet, and the seventh trumpet begins to sound when the temple of God is open in heaven, which is October 22, 1844. So the new covenant, or the Ark of the Covenant, is seen in the most holy place, which means that sometime after that point, October 22, is when the experience of God writing his law into the hearts and minds of his people will be finished. Now what's interesting about this? <clears throat> what's interesting is that the tables of the covenant or God's law are contained in the Ark of the Covenant and that includes the Seventh-day Sabbath. And it's interesting that the Seventh-day Sabbath was rediscovered after October 22, 1844 because part of the process of God writing his law into the hearts and minds of his people is for them to keep the law completely and fully. And part of keeping God's law completely and fully is remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy, which is the seventh day. <clears throat> so we can see 
a little bit of the new covenant <clears throat> and of the Seventh-day Sabbath being prophesied here. And it's interesting, Paul says with respect to the mercy seat and the cherubims overshadowing the mercy seat that we cannot now speak particularly of it. There's different viewpoints about why Paul says that. Some say, well, he was just in a hurry to get to the main point. Others say that this was at the point in time when Jesus was ministering as our high priest in the holy place, not in the most holy place. So when Paul wrote this, this was not the point of emphasis of his message. But he's mentioning it because at some point in the future, it will become the point of emphasis. Now, let's read verses um, 6 and 7. Volunteer to read Hebrews 9, verses 6 and 7. Right over here. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. Okay. Now, this is pretty straightforward, and this is really just a review of the sanctuary service. So, into the first tabernacle or into the holy place, the high priest went into that apartment every day of the year. Pretty straightforward. And, but into the second tabernacle, which is the holy of holies or the most holy place, the high priest only went into the most holy place once every year. And what did the high priest do in the most holy place? once a year. What happened there? That was the Day of Atonement. That was the day that the sins of God's people were blotted out, which of course correlates with the new covenant experience of God writing his law into the hearts and minds of his people, because if your sins are blotted out, you're going to be keeping God's law perfectly. But this is pretty clear. Into the first, high priest went every day. Into the second, High priest went alone once every year. And he says not without blood. That means he went with blood. And it was the blood that was used to blot out the sins of God's people. And he offered the blood not only for himself but for the heirs of the people. So comment down here real quick. On your left. To be precise, in verse 7... Not only is it called the Day of Atonement, but the people of God are brought into judgment. Mm -hmm. And that text will correlate with Revelation 11.19 in the fact that the people of God are brought into judgment. That's right. So, as Duane was accurately pointing out here, that the people were brought into judgment on the Day of Atonement. And in fact, if there was um, any sin found in the camp, the high priest would have lost his life when he went into the most holy place. So that's an interesting concept. Um, you will see the concept of judgment with respect to the Day of Atonement. And at the end of Hebrews 9, um, verses 24 through 28, and specifically in verse 27, the word judgment is used. So we will see that concept again. Now, now that we've established, this is, and I need to point this out, Paul uses the terms first and second tabernacle to describe the holy place and the most holy place, here in verses 6 and 7, which has caused confusion when we come to verse 8. 
because they say, well, the first tabernacle is the holy place in the earthly sanctuary. The second tabernacle is the most holy place in the, in the earthly sanctuary. So then when we come to verse 8, um, when Paul uses the word first tabernacle again here, he must still be talking about the first apartment of the earthly sanctuary. And we're going to look at that to say, is this what Paul really is saying here? So let's look at verse 8, and here's what Paul says. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. Now let's look at this carefully here. This is such an important point that Paul says the Holy Ghost is speaking here. This is very crucial to understand. So whatever is going to be said next here is obviously a very important point. And so the first question you have to ask is, do you think that, that Paul would invoke the Holy Spirit to say, you know, the high priest didn't go into the most holy place as long as the ministry of the, uh, the holy place was still carrying out its function throughout the rest of the year. I mean, perhaps, but why would Paul invoke the Holy Spirit to make that point? That's the first question here. The second point is this. <clears throat> Remember how I said that most Bible translations mistranslate the Greek word to hagia? So instead of saying holy places, they'll say most holy place or holiest of all. In verse 8 here, when Paul says the Holy Ghost is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, the Greek word here is tahagia. And in verse 3, when the King James translates the Greek word holiest of all, it's hagia hagion, which implies the holy of holies or the most holy place. But in verse 8, they say holiest of all, and it's tahagia. So it's a different Greek word, and yet they're saying it's the same thing. So that doesn't make sense. So then we have to come back and say, well, what Paul really is saying is this. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holy places was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. And our, our good sister Grace over here is saying in Arabic, that's how it's translated. So that's helpful. I didn't know that. So thank you for pointing that out. So in Arabic, it's translated correctly. Verse 8 should read, the Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holy places was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. Now, if we understand it this way, that holy places means holy place and most holy place, as a plural form, then the question is, why would Paul say the way into the holy place and most holy place was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing if the first tabernacle only means the holy place? That wouldn't make sense because you would say, okay, the holy place is standing, but the way into the holy place and the most holy place is not yet made manifest because the holy place is still standing. That's not logical at all. So what's Paul trying to say here? He's saying, look, the first tabernacle, while it is standing, 
whatever the holy places are, it's not yet been made manifest. And what is, how does Paul describe the first tabernacle in verses 9 and 10? Let's look. Verse 9, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. Now what do you think Paul is talking about here? The first tabernacle is where you have gifts and sacrifices, meats, drinks, off, meat and drink offerings, carnal ordinances, imposed on them till the time of Reformation. What do you think this is? This is the earthly sanctuary. The earthly sanctuary could not make those perfect as pertaining to the conscience. And it's interesting when you go to Hebrews 10, it talks about how the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. So even though you would come to the Day of Atonement and the blood of bulls and goats would be offered on the Day of Atonement in the most holy place and it represented the blood of Christ, then the same service of the, of the daily service would start all over again the very next day because the sins of God's people really hadn't been taken away. So what Paul is talking about here when it comes to meats and drink offerings and carnal ordinances and gifts and sacrifices are the all the ordinances of the earthly sanctuary. So then when you go back to verse 8, the way into the holy places of the heavenly sanctuary, which is the sanctuary of the new covenant, was not yet made manifest, while the first tabernacle, which was the sanctuary of the earthly sanctuary of the old covenant, was still standing. So as long as the earthly sanctuary of the old covenant is still standing, the way into the holy places, the holy place and the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary is not yet made manifest. And this is an important enough point that the Holy Ghost speaks up on this point. And notice that the earthly sanctuary and the sacrifices of it were imposed <clears throat> on God's people until the time of Reformation. What was the time of Reformation? <clears throat> what does the word Reformation mean? means change. <clears throat> when did that change take place? It took place when Christ died on the cross. And if you go to Colossians 2, it talks about the law of ordinances nailed to the cross. <clears throat> Let's go there. Colossians chapter 2. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 2. <clears throat> Starting in verse 14, same author Paul says, blotting out the, the handwriting of ordinances. You recognize the word ordinances there? We saw that in Hebrews 9. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly triumphing over them in it, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink. Remember we saw meats and drinks in Hebrews 9. That's the meat and drink offerings. 
or in respect of an holy day or the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. And some people try to use the verse to say, see, the Sabbath was nailed to the cross. No, it wasn't. These were the ceremonial Sabbaths of the earthly sanctuary old covenant system that the Hebrew people observed until Christ died on the cross. When Christ dies on the cross, everything that's part of the Mosaic ordinance was nailed to the cross and done away with. But the new covenant is God writing his law on our hearts and on our minds, and that includes the seventh-day Sabbath. So please don't let anyone tell you that God's law, including the seventh-day Sabbath, was nailed to the cross. All Colossians 2 is saying was that the ceremonial law was nailed to the cross. And I don't have the quote with me. I'll try to get it for next Sabbath because I forgot about this passage. But Ellen White says in her writings that Colossians 2, 14 through 17 is speaking of the ceremonial law. There are some theologians even in the Adventist church that say, oh no, this is talking about the moral law. And I don't know how you could justify that and say that the law was nailed to the cross, including the Sabbath. But anyway, so going back to Hebrews 9, we see then that at the time of Reformation, and by the way, there's some people I think that have said that the time of Reformation was the Protestant Reformation. That's not what Paul's talking about. That hadn't even happened when he wrote the book of Hebrews. Um, the time of Reformation is when Christ dies on the cross, and so the ceremonial law is done away with. Now that Paul has established this, he's going to talk about the role of Christ as our high priest. Let's read verses 11 to 14. I'd like a volunteer to read Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 14. Quickly here, right down here. Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 14. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. Verse 14 also. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Okay. Now we're, gonna, now we're talking about Christ as the high priest of good things to come or of a better covenant than the old covenant. So he's the high, high priest of something better than the old covenant. And he's ministering in a greater and more perfect tabernacle than the tabernacle of the old covenant. This is the tabernacle in heaven, the heavenly sanctuary. It's not made with hands, so that means it's not of this building here on this earth. This is the heavenly sanctuary. And then, I like verses 12 through 14. So, he didn't enter into heaven with the blood of goats and calves. He entered into the heavenly sanctuary with his own blood. So he's a much better priest than the priests here on this earth. They didn't enter in with their own blood. They entered in with the blood of goats and calves. But he entered in with his own blood. So he's a much better priest. And then we see, look, if the blood of bulls and goats was supposed to represent sprinkling the uncleanness of your flesh 
how much more do you think the blood of Christ will purify you? And notice this, the blood of Christ not only forgives us and we receive forgiveness from his blood, but we also receive purification from his blood. Jesus didn't die for us and shed his blood to just give us forgiveness. He also shed his blood to purify us. And it says, he offered, so how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot. Now the marginal reading for spot here is fault. So he offered himself without fault to God. Now this is interesting. Jesus offers himself without fault. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, we see that he had no guile when he was reviled. So Jesus has no guile. He's found without fault when he offers himself. And guess what about the 144,000? When they stand on Mount Zion, they are found without fault before the throne of God, and in their mouth is found no guile. These are the same people of the new covenant who have God's law written in their hearts and minds. So Jesus is our high priest, who's also the author and the finisher of our faith, who, as the mediator of the new covenant, writes his law into our hearts and minds. Look, he had no guile in his mouth. He was out without fault. And the people with, of whom he is the author and the finisher of their faith, when they get to the end of the race, they will have no guile in their mouth and they will be without fault. Because they have the faith of Jesus, the patience of the saints, and they keep the commandments of God. So this is Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant. So how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now this is interesting. So because of the blood of Christ, he will purge our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It's interesting, when you go back to Hebrews 4, in Hebrews 4 verse 10 it says for he that is entered into God's rest he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his so notice this God rests on the seventh day from all his works he created the, the world in six literal continuous contiguous days then he rests on the seventh day he rests from all his works and those who enter into God's rest those who have the new covenant experience which includes the seventh-day Sabbath, which means that they have an experience with God all week long, and when the seventh-day Sabbath comes, they have a special day alone with God, which is representative of their holy life all week long. These people have ceased from their own works. And in Hebrews 9, it says, because of the blood of Christ, he's purged us from dead works to serve the living God. So there's a correlation there. We cease from our own works and we enter into God's rest. Jesus, who is the mediator of the new covenant, purges our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So ceasing from our own works, having our conscience purged from dead works, this is part of the new covenant experience. And ultimately, the purging of our conscience from dead works is the blotting out of sin at the end of the day of atonement. Now, let's continue here. Verses 15 through 17. If I could have a volunteer to read Hebrews 9, verses 15 through 17. <clears throat> Down here again. 
Hebrews 9, 15 through 17. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called, called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of, of, for, of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Okay, verses 15 to 17 are pretty straightforward. It talks about Jesus being the mediator of the New Testament. And you know that the same word for testament is covenant. So Jesus is the mediator of the New Covenant. And that he, um, by the means of his death, he redeems those who committed sin under the First Testament or Covenant. And it's interesting, it says, For where a testament or a covenant is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator, for a testament is a force after men are dead. Who was the one who is the testator, so to speak, of the New Testament? This is Jesus. And so when we think about this, when we think about, for example, here on this earth, when you make a living will, that will is not carried out until you die. So you say, I will give a certain amount of my money to this son and a certain amount to this son and so on and so forth. But that doesn't go into effect until you die. And what Paul is saying here is, look, Jesus made a new covenant with his people and he said, I will write my law into your hearts and into your minds. But it would not have any force until Jesus died. When Jesus died, then the new covenant has force. What's amazing to me, it's really sad if you think about it, the purpose for Jesus dying was so that the power would be there to write his law into our hearts and into our minds. What does the devil do? He says because Jesus died, the law was nailed to the cross. That, is, that does not make any sense according to the Bible. The Bible says in order for Jesus to write his law into our hearts and minds, which is the new covenant, the only way for the new covenant to take force is for Jesus to die. And his law is still his law. And then the devil says, oh, his law was nailed to the cross. You don't have to keep it anymore. The reason Jesus died was so that we could receive forgiveness of sins and so that also he could keep his new covenant, which he promised to us, by writing his law into our hearts and into our minds. Now, we're not going to finish chapter 9 today, but we're getting close to finishing it. The end of chapter 9 is really where the, the power is. But let's continue on here. Verses 18 through 22. If I could have a volunteer to read Hebrews chapter 9, verses 18 through 22, right over here. Hebrews 9, verses 18 through 22. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. 
Okay. Now this is pretty straightforward. It's like, look, if um, Christ enters into heaven with his blood, you know, that's also what happened in the earthly sanctuary. This is what Moses did. According to the precepts of the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water, scarlet wool, hyssop. He sprinkled the book and all the people. He said this is the blood of the covenant. And he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And, it's, and so on and so forth. So, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. So <clears throat> there is no remission or removal of sin without the shedding of blood. And so there cannot be any remission or removal of our sin without the shedding of Christ's blood. Now, <clears throat> what I'm going to do, because we're down to our last few minutes, I'm going to read the last few verses of Hebrews 9. We may get part of it today, but we're not going to get all the concepts. So I'm just going to hit some high points, and then next week we'll really go into the last verses of Hebrews 9. But I just want to do that so we can sort of tie off the theme here. So verse 23. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heaven, that's the earthly sanctuary, should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So clearly, Christ's sacrifice is better, so the ministry of Christ in heaven is better. Now this is where things really get powerful. Verses 24 through 28 are one of the high points of the book of Hebrews. Verse 24, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. What are the holy places made with hands? That's the earthly sanctuary, the holy place and the most holy place, which are the figures of the true. So notice, the holy place and the most holy place are the figures of the true sanctuary, which tells us if they're figures, that means we have a holy place and a most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary. So Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. So now Christ is in heaven, which has a holy place and a most holy place, to appear in the presence of God for us. Verse 25, Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place, and that should be holy places, every year with the blood of others. <clears throat> for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 27, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Notice verse 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. There is a lot in these verses. And so I'm just going to point out a few things. <clears throat> Christ has entered into heaven and his purpose in entering entering into heaven is to put away the sins of God's people. He started in the holy place and then he transitioned on the day of atonement, which was October 22, 1844, to the most holy place. He made a sacrifice for sin once and once in the end of the world he appears to put away sin. And we see that there's a judgment to come and eventually, we see that Christ will come the second time, and he will come without sin. We're going to study what it means for Christ to come the second time without sin for those who look to him. Because in Hebrews chapter 12, it describes a group of people who look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of their faith. And those are the people that he's going to come back for. We're going to study that next week. Thank you, everyone.